The following interview with Dr. Arlene Geronimus is from May the 28th, 2020. I have the great pleasure of having on the show tonight the esteemed Dr. Arlene Geronimus. In 1985, Dr. Geronimus received her Doctor of Science in Behavioral Sciences degree from Harvard University School of Public Health with a minor's in biostatistics and social policy. She received her undergraduate degree from Princeton in 1978. From 1999 to present, Dr. Geronimus has worked as a professor in the Department of Health, Behavior, and Health Education School of Public Health at the University of Michigan, as well as a research professor, Population Studies Center, the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan, and as a faculty associate, Center on Race, Ethnicity, Culture, and Health at the University of Michigan. She has been a primary contributor to dozens of peer-reviewed studies on subjects we will be speaking to tonight. Dr. Geronimus's research interests include understanding the social and biological mechanisms that mediate racial disparities in health, along with the full pathway from the environmental to the cellular level. Uh, actually, how our experiences in life, if they are negative, we're going to be talking about how they can actually impact health. Fascinating theories that are based in scientific research and studies that the doctor has been a part of and has researched extensively. So looking at the effects of poverty, institutionalized discrimination, and residential areas on health, uh, the strategies used by marginal communities to reduce or mitigate those harmful effects of poverty and structural racism. With that said, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let me just put this in the context of COVID-19. We have discussed the gross disparities in wealth in our nation for all people on this show, and we see it as the most pernicious indication of the obstacles at giving everyone a fair and equal opportunity to succeed in this country. But particularly subpopulations within our country are disproportionately hit with these types of material discriminations. And to put these numbers into context, African Americans make up some 13% of the population, but some 27% of the COVID-19 deaths for which race and ethnicity is known. That's according to this group called APM, APM Research. By contrast, uh, about 62% of the population in places reporting race and ethnicity are white, but white residents make up 49% of the COVID-19 deaths, the research shows. Hispanics, or Latinos, if you will, comprise about 18% of the population and are about 16% of the deaths. Americans of Asian descent make up 5% of the population and 5% of the deaths. My understanding is that Native Americans are disproportionately represented in these numbers too, but I don't have those exact numbers. But with all that being said, just to kind of kick off this discussion, doctor, I was reading an article that I've been fascinated about. The pernicious nature of poverty is not just the material side of things, but there are studies that in 2016, Brookings Institute put out a study that's been fairly replicated that indicated that people born in the 1950s, these are males, if they were born in the top 10% of income earners, they had some 14 years longer life expectancies than those born in the bottom 10%. So clearly we know that just from a socioeconomic perspective, irregardless of race, there are these pernicious effects of poverty outside of the traditional ones that we look at. Your work has gone a step further 
and looked at issues surrounding how with racism and biases of different sorts that some subgroups have to endure, that it also has an impact on life expectancy rates. And so I wanted to start off by asking you to give us just an overview of those factors that kind of intersect that create these differences throughout our population and particularly with African-Americans. The differences you describe are actually probably underestimates of how much less life expectancy is and healthy life expectancy is for some marginalized groups compared to others. We've done studies, for instance, looking in specific neighborhoods or parts of the country or the very poor, and you can see even in the same county, you can see that there will be some people who will do much worse than others. And so I think we actually have not, as a society, have not quite wrestled with just how inequitable and sort of a fashion of more fine-grained and gradient fashion these inequalities in life expectancy are. And as I said, also, there's even groups that have similar life expectancies, if they're members of racial minority groups, will probably spend much larger percentages of their life expectancy and poor health of some kind, chronic disease, disability, or something Mm -hmm. like that. So I think the intense and endless ways that health is sort of stratified in our society and and just how pernicious it is are barely touched at when people just look at regular, say, life expectancy differences. That's sort of the, you know, the proverbial tip of the iceberg. So, Dr. Geronimo's just the intersection of these different factors that create the disparity in life expectancy and the issues we're finding mm-hmm. in the COVID-19 outcomes where these, these numbers are incongruent with the population percentage. The COVID-19 outcomes just show in a very concrete and acute way the fact that people in different populations in the United States have much greater or lesser health vulnerabilities to chronic disease and, in this case, infectious disease. And so it's sort of a neon light of a broader process that's happening every day, which I've termed weathering, whereby the kind of combined factors of material hardship, high effort coping with that hardship, being othered, being exposed to environmental stressors, the sort of entire cascade on both a material, a psychosocial, and an environmental level of exposure to stressors and coping with them that some of our marginalized populations in the U.S. have to deal with every day over years and decades, that that wears away at their health. It causes a kind of stress-mediated wear and tear across body systems, um, and it ages them even down to the level of their cells. And our research has studied all of these different aspects. And so when faced with something like COVID-19, a a new infectious agent that is so easily transmissible, people in marginalized populations are, first of all, more likely to get exposed because they're more likely to be in the jobs of essential low-wage workers. They're less likely to have good access to health care, or even if they have literal access to it, there's often a lot of implicit and sometimes explicit racial bias in that health care, so they don't get the same quality of health care. They are living in overcrowded conditions, much more likely, and they're engaging in high-effort coping every day 
with the social injustices they're facing as well as with just having to make ends meet. And so this also crosses class lines to the extent that members of uh, marginalized groups, even if they are themselves not experiencing material hardship in their specific household, they're still often parts of networks where they're responsible for helping out and, and where they care about people who are experiencing hardship in their families and networks. They're also engaged in high-effort coping um, with a variety of threats to their social identities in public situations and work situations in schools. And they also may be living in more environmentally um, threatened and toxic areas of the country. And they have less buffer in terms of things like wealth for a moment like this, for instance, where if you lose your job indefinitely now because of COVID-19, some populations will have, you know, real rainy day funds and others won't, or others will have to share them across a very broad network of people. So, so everything, it's sort of like another fist in the face. And, and what this does is it, is it literally leads to a kind of constant state of stress arousal throughout your life for which we as human beings are not adapted. We're adapted to deal with very quick uh, lethal threats where our bodies kind of go into high gear, you know, to outrun that lion that's coming at us or, you know, to engage in fight or flight. But we're, we're built to also engage those physiological stress reactions when we think there's a threat, even if it turns out there isn't one because it's better, obviously, to respond to a false alarm than to not respond to a true alarm. So in other words, uh, it sounds like what you're saying, and I I was reading your research paper from 2019. It was in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior. Mm -hmm. You're talking about this weathering. Mm -hmm. And, and, And so in that piece, it was really interesting. You talk about the term of this allostasis, basically involving, which I understand to be the kind of the, the normal regulation of a homostatic internal body balance in the body mm-hmm. that lowers physiological consequences that are negative to the body. So life is full of stress, and stress is always going on. The blood coursing through my veins is stress in my body. But when you have too much stress, that's like distress. And if it's prolonged, what you're, what you're suggesting from your research is it in and itself can cause cellular changes, I I presume, and these health type of outcomes. So my question is this, in addition to some of the diseases that like of hypertension and obesity, those very significant types of indicators that have been connected to, you know, rather poor diets too. So it's something that's not uncommon for a lot of people. Actually, as a country, we're obese. Uh, our, mm-hmm. at least our rates of, uh, of obesity are much, much higher than the European countries and such. But how about, about the issues of discrimination? I mean, I'm not an African-American, but if I walked around and I was, say, a, a black woman, there may be some layers of sexism going on, of discrimination at that level. There may be some layers of discrimination going on as a matter of, of race, which I think anybody that has their eyes open can see that that's a very significant deal. And let's say I was a gay or lesbian, another mm-hmm. type of... Or transgender. Yeah, or transgender. So now I have, and I'm feeling this angst, I guess, that someone 
that does not have these characteristics, does not have to deal with from day in and day out and stuff. You're saying like the, the cumulative effect of that low level but significant type of rejection, for lack of a better language, has physiological consequences. Is that right? Yes, because it leads people... When, I need to step back a little. If, if you're living somewhere where you're constantly under threat of various kinds, and those can be threats to life or limb, those can be threats to your feeling of identity safety, which is what I think you're describing right now when you're talking about just structural racism and interpersonal racism and microaggressions and not-so-microaggressions that have to do with your identity and also the sort of extra work you have to do to manage your identity when you're in integrated settings. When you're living somewhere that isn't safe for you on any level, so I'm, you know, physically, emotionally, psychosocially, and where you have to engage sort of sustained cognitive and emotional engagement to, to deal, to kind of make it through your life, make it through your day, all of those processes can activate this physiological stress arousal, and that's what keeps it not necessarily low level, but that's what keeps it chronic and toxic. And when that happens, physiologically, a lot of the same things happen in your body that we think about in terms of, you know, eating the wrong things. When you have stress hormones rushing through your body because of a physiological stress reaction, that starts, raises your blood pressure, that raises your heart rate, that, that kind of siphons your, you know, energy off to the large muscles that you need to fight or flee. And it kind of cuts off energy to other parts of your body. It floods your blood system with glucose, with sugars, and with fat, for that matter. This is just a normal physiological process. When we have it in small doses, it's probably life-saving and not particularly harmful beyond the three minutes that you're, you know, on the savanna fleeing from the lion, mm -hmm. uh, after which you're, you know, either you've gotten away or you're you haven't survived, um, but in any case, you have about um, three minutes of this stress arousal. When instead, you're dealing daily with objective stressors, those would be things like environmental stressors, being too cold or too hot, being hungry, so a variety of things you, you know are, are also in the life experience of people who are poor and segregated. Pollution-oriented environments, too, that are... They're, they're, yeah. They're, their exposure to the, is that what part of the environmental piece that you were talking yes, about earlier? Exposure, environmental injustice exposures mm -hmm. to, you know, toxic waste, to air pollution, mm -hmm. having more exposures at work that are hazardous or toxic. If, if you don't have enough heat in your apartment or you can't afford heat in your house or apartment and you're forever cold, that's an objective physiological stressor. If you're in a heat wave and you have no access to fans or air conditioning, that's an objective stressor. If you're if you're food insecure and and spending days being hungry, if you're working a night shift um, and suffering sleep deprivation for any reason, including ruminating about these stressors or about how you're going to make ends meet or how you're going to, you know, how you're going to, you know, survive various assaults on your dignity, even um, as well as literal assaults that are physical. All of these things arouse this physiological stress reactions, and over time, with all that circulating sugars and fat and, and that increased heartbeat and blood pressure, 
what happens is your body systems get dysregulated. You start building up all, all the plaques we think about again in relation to eating a bad diet. You start becoming not just obese, it contributes to obesity, but it also contributes to the patterning on your body of that fat so that you're more likely to have it in your abdomen, which is the least healthy form of fat. You'll start getting hardening of the arteries. There'll be dysregulations in your pancreas and and you'll become insulin resistant. All of this weathers your body and and also dysregulates your neuroendocrine system, your cardiovascular system, your metabolic system, and your immune system, which in the case of COVID is particularly important. But again, COVID's kind of a neon light and very measurable example of this weathering, but, but people who weather, population subject to weathering, are becoming ill at early ages and dying young or prematurely every day because of the ways in which the things they have to cope with in their lives are all wearing away their body systems and making them much more vulnerable to any sort of health problem. So in other words, what you're saying is in addition to all of the other issues of poverty that poverty brings, less access to health care, people are not getting probably properly medicated for high blood pressure type stuff because they can't afford it or all of this. This is at a another front. You know, when you're talking about this, I just wanted to share my own experience is in the field of, a, of addiction studies. And when you look at, let's say somebody that uses uh, an outside dr- chemical drug like cocaine or, or mm-hmm. methamphetamine, for instance, or something, a stimulant, that what it does when it gets into your body it does mimic the fight or flight. The, the pupils, mm-hmm. they, they dilate, so you can see mm-hmm. everything. So like that deal, like if you're trying to outrun a line, all of a sudden you can run faster than you've ever run before. But mm-hmm. the, the whole point of it is is that you're able, your heart rate starts increasing. You're, you've got this bronchodilation where your more oxygen gets into your bloodstream so you can run faster. Um, mm-hmm. your, your, your eye pupils, as we just said, they dilate so you can see everything, all of that. You're, what I'm understanding you to say is that these fight-or-flight moments or when you have that type of stress, your body can handle it fairly well for about three minutes, but if you're strung out on a foreign chemical and it's going on for you know hours rather than three minutes, the deleter- and in fact, when someone is on these drugs like cocaine or stimulants, you flash a, a flashlight into their, their eyes, their, their pupils are dilated. You know, they're bron- they have bronchodilate. It's just mimicking your own fight-or-flight response, but... Anything that's inordinately long, and you're saying if I'm a, an African-American dealing with discrimination and all these other things every day, there's probably lower levels of this stress hormone, but still unhealthy levels, I would guess, in a way that over time creates the very changes you're suggesting. Is that a fair summary of what you're, what you're alluding to? I think it's a fair summary. I would say that you know whether someone occasionally takes cocaine and has a several-hour impact may not lead to weathering if the rest of their life is not stressful (laughs) and if they're not doing this every day. But if they're addicted and taking drugs every day and, you know, having to remain vigilant to all other kinds of threats or to be endlessly managing in their minds, you know, how am I going to get to work this morning? The bus hasn't shown up. I'm standing in the freezing cold and smelling diesel fuel waiting for it. If I'm late, I might get fired, um, or I might have to stay late, and then I can't get home in time to get to my second job because we're all paid so little that 
you can't possibly make ends meet on one job, and then I worry about my kids, and then I get no sleep because I do a night shift job. Right. These things are just 24-7. I think that's a good yeah. analogy. In the limited time that we have, I wanted to turn back to this article, this urban poor aging faster at cellular level, because in the article, they're quoting your work, and they are indicating that in these studies that went on, the researchers analyzed what they called telomeres, T-E-L-O-M-E-R-E-S, of poor and lower middle class black, white, and Mexican residents of Detroit. And these telomeres are these tiny caps at the end of DNA strands akin to the plastic caps at the end of shoelaces that protect mm-hmm. cells from aging prematurely. But you're actually found that the telomere length, as it shortens, the predictability, it's associated with shorter types of lifespan. That's the physiological thing that's going on as a result of these things you're talking about that then translate into maybe shorter life expectancies for this population. Mm-hmm. So, Yes, it's one of the physiological things. Telomeres, as you said, are these protective caps on the end of chromosomes, and they shorten. You have, you're sort of born with a certain length telomere, and it protects the, the DNA and, and the cell integrity. And as you grow and develop and later as you age, your telomeres shorten as in every cell it undergoes division. And that, that is, in a way related to what aging biologically is. We all will eventually have our telomeres shortened to a kind of threshold length where the cells die or at least don't replicate and and it becomes impossible, you know, for our organs and tissues to repair themselves or to continue to function. And that's sort of senescence and aging, but we mostly think that's not happening till the 70s or 80s. But what our research found is that in marginalized and impoverished populations subject to weathering, you can see evidence of that telomere shortening at much earlier ages, certainly, you know, by the 30s and 40s and 50s, and probably even younger than that. And there are several things that could lead to telomere shortening faster in some people than others. Part of it in an individual level is just genetic, but on a population level, that's not the main factor, or it isn't really a factor at all. Your cells will divide more and more if they need to repair damaged tissues and organs. And so to the extent that this weathering process we've been talking about leads to the damaging of tissues and organs, your cells are going to divide more often and faster, and therefore your telomeres are going to get shortened to a length where they no longer either survive or behave in a good way, um, or a way that promotes your health. So what's nice about the telomeres is that they're literally measurable, and they literally tell you something about cell aging. And there are now several studies that suggest that stressful life experiences, differences in income, and other vectors of social difference affects the rate at which your telomeres shorten, which then affects the rate at which you age and affects the rate at which you get a variety of diseases, including cardiovascular diseases, including cancers, and also including problems and dysregulation of your immune system that make you more vulnerable to infectious disease. Outstanding. So that's very, very interesting. Now, last question, and we'll make it quick since we're running out of time. 
you know, I was looking through the literature. There seems to be other studies that are pointing in the same direction. So this is not something that just your team has discovered, but it's been speculated on, and I imagine it's been continued to be researched over the years. So you, is there a growing database that supports the claims that you're making? Absolutely. I and my colleagues have been studying this probably for close to 30 years, but at the beginning, I don't think we had the broad knowledge we have now of what happens at the molecular level, if we're talking about the telomeres, there was much more singular focus on on individual behaviors as the way to think about racial or ethnic or class disparities. Um, we've gotten much more kind of sophisticated in, in our understanding, on the one hand, of the whole physiology of body system dysregulation and cellular aging, and on the other hand, about the sort of critical race theory and the ways that racism can impact health in both objective and subjective ways. And so over time, our work has provided more and more evidence in favor of this perspective in a number of different populations and different ways of measuring it and different health outcomes. And others have also studied this. And so I think it's, it's, or studied parts of it, for instance, the work on stress and telomeres was not initially done in the context of racial disparities. It was just done as a way to try to understand biological aging as we began to have an aging population. Mm -hmm. So there's these different strands of research that have gotten more and more sophisticated and under this umbrella of weathering our stress physiology, more and more of us have been able to bring them together and apply them to the racial health inequities. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been very insightful, that racism and poverty, it, it literally kills. There's science behind that, not just common sense. Absolutely. And I think you've explicated that very well. We've had the great pleasure of visiting with Dr. Arlene Geronimus at the University of Michigan. She's a research professor at Population Studies Center. Her research can be found by Googling her name, which last name is G-E-R-O-N-I-M-U-S. All right, well, thank you for bringing light into darkness, and thank you for your research and work. We look forward to the further progress of, of your research. Keep us posted. Keep me posted, please. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thank, thank you, you ma'am, so, so, so much.